Shalom, brothers and sisters. I'm Brother Sid. I have Brother Corey assisting me today. We are the Commandment Keepers Church. We have a detailed lesson prepared for our brothers and sisters internationally. The title of today's lesson will be This Thing You Call Salvation. This Thing You Call Salvation. Brothers and sisters, uh, today's lesson will be aimed at understanding what salvation is. That's because why? In the Christian church, you know, they just threw that word around, but really never gave us the quality information for us to be able to grow. So today's lesson will help, uh, will help us ascertain clearly what salvation is, brothers and sisters. And guess what? We'll start with the etymology. The etymology of the word salvation, brothers and sisters, it comes from a word what? Salvage, okay? And salvage, salvage is not a word that we, that you hear, brothers and sisters. Salvage is a synonym for what? Recycle, right? So that means salvage means to take something that is currently useless and find use for it brothers and sisters, okay? So when you look at uh, when you look at Matthew 10 and 28, and this isn't part of our lesson, brothers and sisters, but when you look at Matthew 10 and 28 and look at that word hell that Christ is using, when you look at that word in the Greek, brothers and sisters, matter of fact, let, let us pull it up here. We're going to give you the Greek number. When you look at Matthew 10 and 28, the Greek number for hell, which is the last word in that particular verse is G1067. So G1067, and what do you have? It's a word called Gehenna, brothers and sisters, okay? It's called Gehenna. This was a physical place, brothers and sisters. It's also called the Valley, Valley of Hymnon. So remember, during the time of Christ, there was no irrigation system. Brothers and sisters, so this was a place where all the sewage, all the rubbish, all the trash was taken and set on fire. I encourage you to look that up, brothers and sisters. It's G-E-H-E-N-N-A, okay? Look that up. It's Gehenna, brothers and sisters. It was a place, a valley where all the trash, all the rubbish, all the sewage was lit on fire. This was on the south side of Jerusalem. It was right outside of Jerusalem, rather, in, on the south side. So go ex examine that, because Christ was saying that hell was a rubbish dump, <laughs> right? So that'll help you understand. Hell is God's rubbish dump, okay? And what do you do with rubbish? You throw it away. Exactly. Exactly, brothers and sisters. When you look at any scripture that talks about somebody being, you know, going to hell, you'll never see it say he was sent to hell or he was placed in hell. It always says he was cast, thrown, cast is to throw. So rubbish is thrown in the trash. Hell is the rubbish can for the most high brothers and sisters. So that means what? Salvation. Salvation is what you'll find today. It's, it's a process, right? For, for those cans that we throw away, that we recycle, it's an it's a entire process to make it usable again, brothers and sisters. 
So what you'll find today is that salvation is actually it's a process. It's not something that transpires instantaneously. It's, it's a long process, brothers and sisters, okay? There's three steps. I encourage you to write these down. I'm going to give you the, the theological name, brothers and sisters. I don't really like the theological names because I'm not a fan of Latin English. I would prefer what you call Saxon English, which is short, you know, uh, very picturesque, uh, punches, uh, excuse me, pa packs a punch in a short space. When they do start dealing with these Latin English words, they try to have long words that make them seem smart. So we'll give you the name for it just so you can study it on your own. Number one, the first step of salvation is called justification, brothers and sisters. Justification is to be set free from the penalty of sin, right? Like when you're trying to justify yourself, right? Okay. Then you have sanctification. Sanctification is to be set free from the power of sin. That's to separate yourself from sin, brothers and sisters, to cleanse or purify yourself. And then you have the final stage, which is glorification. And glorification is to be set free from the presence of sin. And once you have all three of these, now you have found salvation. Now you are usable. Now you are recyclable, brothers and sisters. So we first wanted to give you, you know, give a little prologue on what salvation is. That it comes from a word salvage. And that hell or Gehenna was actually a rubbish dump. Christ called this place a rubbish dump, or he called it hell. And guess what? The people he was speaking to, that audience understood exactly what he was saying because they knew where Gehenna or hell was, brothers and sisters. So we're going to do a thorough lesson. This is very important. I, 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 I beg you to write down these scriptures, okay, and study this on your own. We're going to Hebrews the second chapter in the third verse, brothers and sisters, and the title is salve, excuse me, the, the title is this thing you call salvation. Hebrews 2 verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? Brothers and sisters, the author here provides a, a penetrating insight into what the attitude of the Ephesus area of God's people was. Look at, because this, this was to Ephesus here, okay? Can you read that one more time, brother? Hebrews 2 and 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? If we do what, brother? If we neglect so great salvation. See, so verse 1 admonishes the reader to pay close attention to the gospel message of what? Salvation. Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. And it was confirmed. So look at this. According to the text, the neglectors of the Most High salvation shall not escape condemnation. See? So this was a word to believers, not those outside of the faith. How do we know? Let's read that one more time. Hebrews 2 and 3. How shall we escape 
If we neglect so great salvation. If we reject it. If we neglect so great salvation. See, so the danger described isn't rejecting salvation, but the dangerous neglecting salvation. You see that, brothers and sisters? The image here is one of carelessness, uh, apathy, as opposed to what? Diligence. So the author was making it very clear, okay? You can't escape if you neglect salvation. So what are we, we going to do today? We're going to make sure that we utilize the Bible to make something complex elementary, brothers and sisters. We first needed to show what? That there's going to be many people, even Israelites, who neglect salvation, what it really is, what it truly is. Our people like to go into all this deep, you know, all this deep stuff and the apographer and the, the white man and, and all this stuff. And he's saying, listen, worry about salvation. OK. This salvation is for Jews and Gentiles. OK. Let's go to Ephesians 3 and 12. Follow us, please, brothers and sisters. We have a lot of scriptures today. If we're moving too fast, pause this this video, um, write down your scriptures, and then 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 start it again. We're going to Ephesians three and seventeen. We'll read seventeen through nineteen. Ephesians three and seventeen, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. Let's read, a, let's read that one more time from the top because what you're seeing is, is Paul is praying that we're able to comprehend the entire scope of salvation. Ephesians 3 and 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, the breadth and length, the length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God see so the implied vastness of salvation alone should operate as a condemnation to negligence <laughs> he said, well, listen, that you're able to comprehend the breadth, the length, the depth, the height. So it's much more than what we've been taught, brothers and sisters, okay? Salvation is much more vast than confess Christ with your mouth and you'll be saved, okay? It's a whole process to salvage something or to recycle something is a process, brothers and sisters. This thing is not instantaneous, so the implication of the text is that Paul's desire was for our heightened level of spiritual awareness, brothers and sisters. We'll do that today. Let's go to Hebrews 7 and 25. Most of our scriptures will be found in the New Testament today, brothers and sisters. Hebrews 7 and 25. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Brothers and sisters, I need you I need you to go look at that word uttermost in the Greek. Go to Hebrews, you can type in Hebrews chapter seven, uh, Strong's Concordance, and then go to go to 
the 25th verse. We're going to pull it up here, brothers and sisters. We're going to pull it up here. Hebrews, the 7th chapter, the 25th verse. And we're going to look at that word uttermost, which is Greek 3838. What does that word uttermost, uttermost mean? It says complete, perfect, completely. Okay? So that word uttermost actually says completely. Now we'll read that with the word completely rather than uttermost. Hebrews 7 and 25. Wherefore he is able also to save them to, to completely that come unto God by him. So look at this. He said he's able to save them, you know, completely that come unto the most high. So hold on. <laughs> that, that There's an implication there. And the implication here is that there is a metric by which salvation could be deemed incomplete. See, so that word uttermost, brothers and sisters, we, sometimes you have to, a lot of times you have to actually pull these words up in the Greek or in the Hebrew to fully get, you know, get the truth of it. So let's read it as it's written, brother. Verse 25, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. See, so one of Paul's fundamental doctrines is that salvation is a process that we must work through. Okay? He said that, listen, he's able to save us completely or all the way to completion. So that, that gives us an indication that there's something as incomplete salvation. And if it can be incomplete, that means it has to be more than one. <laughs> there has to be more than than one step, brothers and sisters, okay? What I discovered, when you look into history, you know, the Protestant Reformation, which was started by who? Martin Luther. They were the ones who started to base salvation on justification. So as long as you're justified, you're actually saved, okay? That's That was that, was that movement, okay? Christians deal with this justification, which means... I'm justified, right? I'm justified. I'm, 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 I'm justified from the penalty of sin. When you deal with Christians, that's all they talk about is justification. They believe justification is salvation, and it's not. Justification is the first step. Okay? Let's go to Philippians, brother. Today's today's lesson will be a little it'll be a little bit heavy. So if, if a person is just finding our channel or into the truth, you know, for a month, two months, six months even, this may be above what you're able to digest right now. Okay? Save this and we have plenty of milk on the on the uh, broadcast as as a part of our channel. You go to some of that milk, right? And, and save this for when you're of age, okay? For those of us who, who actually can digest this, please listen to Brother Corey's reading carefully. Philippians 1, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Christ. Let's read that one more time. Listen closely, brothers and sisters. Philippians 1 and 6, 
being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. The word begun is indicative of a process yet to be completed, brothers and sisters, right? So the author highlights what? An unfinished work operating within us. Remember the scripture prior, Hebrews 7.25 said he's able to save us completely or to the uttermost. And then Philippians says what, brother? Verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that I or that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. Look at that. According to the text, the work that has begun is where? Within you. See? So the author teaches us that salvation is what? It's an ongoing process, brothers and sisters. And this tells us that there is someone who's overseeing our spiritual development and growth. Look at it closely. Could you read that one more time, brother? Philippians 1 and 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you. So somebody begun a good work in you. That lets us know there is someone overseeing your development and growth. You didn't start the good work. Somebody started this good work within you. Do you see that, brothers and sisters? So we wanted to show you that, listen, you have salvation being incomplete. And if salvation is incomplete, how do we complete it? According to the Bible. How do we complete salvation? Because it's not what Christians have taught. I wish it was as easy as confess Christ with your mouth and you'll be saved. I wish it was that easy, but that... That's a mischaracterization of the Bible's doctrine. Let us show you. Let's go to Philippians 2 and 12, brothers and sisters. Philippians 2 and 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. According to the text... Brothers and sisters, there are two kinds of obedience. Could you read that one more time, brother? Verse 12. Two kinds of obedience. Let's hear. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only. So there's a kind of obedience that's done only in the presence of others. But now much more in my absence. And there's obedience that's done in the absence of others, right? According to Philippians Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Mm. So according to the text, man has a role to play in his salvation. He must work out his salvation. You see, brothers and sisters, here again, salvation is presented as what? As a process which is yet to be completed. Let's read that one more time, brother. Philippians 2 and 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. With what, brother? With fear and trembling. Paul included the phrase, excuse me, the phrase with fear and trembling. Why? Because this describes the attitude required in order to complete this salvation process. Fear and trembling. 
work out your salvation. See, so there's work involved. Okay, brothers and sisters. There's a process. Things are not recyclable the day that you, they go to the, the, to the dump. <laughs> it's, a, it's an entire elongated process. And we're going to deal with that today, brothers and sisters. We're going to deal with that today. Remember, write this down. The first step is what? Justification, being justified. The second step is being sanctified or sanctification. And your third and final step is glorification. Brothers and sisters, write this down because if you, if you don't write that down or if you're not able to understand that, the rest of this will sound like another language to you, brothers and sisters. Let's go to 2 Timothy 3 and 6. 2 Timothy 3 and 6. Follow us there, please. Uh, excuse me, 3 and 16. 2 Timothy 3 and 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Look at this closely, brothers and sisters. Can you read 16 one more time? L listen to this closely, brothers and sisters. Verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Look at that. Paul affirmed with elegant finality that all scripture is breathed out of the most high. Okay. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. That the man of God may be what, brother? May be perfect. Let's, let's stop right there, brothers and sisters. According to the text, the Bible was given for the perfection of man. Man is male and female. Because why? Usually you'll have a Christian say, well, listen, I can't, I'm never going to be perfect. Okay? That's Christ. Well, the Bible was given for a particular purpose. To be furnished unto all good works through perfection. That's the whole purpose of the Bible. Okay, brothers and sisters? So let's deal with that. It's telling you that we can become perfect. Let's go to Matthew 5. Let us show you that Christ carried this same narrative, brothers and sisters. Christ carried this same narrative. We're going to the last verse in the fifth chapter of Matthew. Matthew 5 and 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Here the Messiah communicates what? A clear stand that must be met, uh, a clear standard that must be met, brothers and sisters. What was that standard, Brother Corey? Verse 48, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. That word perfect, brothers and sisters, it means to become or be complete, mature, fully developed, fully grown. So that's what it, that's what it means. We'll pull that up in the Greek also. Because this is what students do, brothers and sisters. Students, to get, you know, 
to, to get more understanding, they go into the actual etymology of the word. We're going to go to Matthew 5 and 48. Going to, excuse me. We're going to Matthew 5 and 48. And we're going to look at that word in the Greek. That word, perfect. It says, it's the Greek number 5046. And it says, complete. Completeness. A full age. You see that, brothers and sisters? So that word perfect doesn't mean without fault. It means complete. Let's go back. Let's read that one more time, brother. Matthew 5 and 48. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now, and we've proven that according to the dictionary, the Strong's Concordance, for the, the word that was there before the English, that word perfect is saying complete. So this call to full development highlights what? The embryonic state of our current condition. You see this, brothers and sisters? This is a future directive given an indication of an ongoing process. Be ye therefore complete. <laughs> so hold on. The, the, the structure of the text indicates what? That there's some incompletion somewhere within us that can be rectified, that can be rectified by utilizing the Bible. See, this is a, this is a process, brothers and sisters, becoming perfect. That's a process. Becoming complete. That is a process. Brothers and sisters, and the only way to accomplish that goal would be to use the manu to use the literature. That's the only way. We will help you do that today, brothers and sisters. Brother Corey, let's go to Philippians. A lot of scriptures in Philippians here today. We're going to go to Philippians, the third chapter in the twelfth. Through the 14th verses. Philippians 3 and 12. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of in Christ. Beginning in verse 12, he makes sure that we understand that he has not attained perfection or completion. Look at that. <laughs> Can you read that one more time, brother? Verse 12. Not as though I had already attained. Not as though I've already completed this. Either were already perfect, but I follow after. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ. So the author of the Bible is saying there is a path I have yet to walk. There is a level I am yet to reach. And this is the author of the Bible. <laughs> okay. So what about me and what about us? What about us? This is the author saying, listen, I know I'm not complete. I, I still have much work to do. Let's read verse 13. Verse 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, 
But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Look at this, brothers and sisters. The implication of Paul's writing is that there's a process that must be completed. This is what he's breaking down. He's saying, I count not myself to accomplish or to apprehend this. So there's one thing I must do. What is that one thing? Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ. Look at that. Paul illustrates that subsequent to receiving God's grace, our responsibility is to return full effort in what? Striving to perfection or striving to completion. So this is key because why? Once, once you come into this truth and you, you're in the truth, you know, for three years, four years, five years, you begin to get lackadaisical. That first stimulant that you had of knowing your Israel, that, that wears off, right? The first stimulant that the Gentiles even have about, you know, the virgin birth is a lie and Christmas is wrong and all, that runs out. That runs out, but it's not over. I've seen many brethren, many brethren find the truth and get rocked to sleep after a year or two because following the law becomes easier, certain parts of the law. Once you don't eat pork for a year, it's not hard. Once you don't celebrate Christmas for a year or two, it's not hard. So what, what I found, what I've discovered is then we sit back and say, well, listen, I'm good. I just have to wait on Christ. I'm good to go. I don't eat pork. You know, I don't deal with fornication. I don't deal with, you know, Christmas and all these things. I'm just waiting on the Messiah. That's that's a that's a mix, mischaracterization of the Bible, brothers and sisters. Because the Bible is telling us that there's work to do. We have not completed. Paul is saying this. The author of the majority of the Bible is saying, I, I don't count myself to have apprehended so how can I, how can we, brothers and sisters, there is work to be done and only the Bible can show us where that work is. Okay. Let's go to Hebrews, brother. We have a lot of New Testament. Why? Because salvation is a New Testament theme, brothers and sisters. We're going to Psalms. Five and eight. <clears throat> Is it Hebrews five? Yes, excuse me. Hebrews five and eight. <clears throat> Hebrews five, verse eight. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Brothers and sisters, according to the text, Christ was not created perfect. He became perfect through obedience. Could you read that one more time, brother? Hebrews 5 and 8. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect. Being created perfect? Being made perfect. He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. See, so if you examine the text closely, we discover a link between what? Perfection and salvation. 
Let's read those two scriptures one more time. Verse 8. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. You see that, brothers and sisters? Obedience and salvation are inextricably linked according to the author. Obtaining completion, Christ is qualified to be the source or author of salvation. That's why it says he became the author. How? Because he was he was made perfect. He worked unto completion. That word perfect doesn't mean without fault in the Bible. Even though he was without fault, it means completion. So he completed this process that we're speaking of today. Justification. Subsequent to that justification, sanctification, which means to be set apart. And then finally, glorification. When you receive that glorious body. That is salvation, brothers and sisters. We just wanted to pull this out because Christ became perfect. Okay, he became perfect. How? Through obedience. He wasn't created perfect. He, he was made perfect. Why? Because he went through the process, the steps, brothers and sisters. He was made complete. We're going to stay in the same book. We're just going to go to the 13th chapter in the 21st, excuse me, the 20th and the 21st verse. Hebrews 13 and 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will. Make you what, brother? Make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Christ, to whom be, be glory Forever and ever. Amen. Mm. Brothers and sisters, look at it closely because the first thing we learn from the author is the source of our peace. Let's read verse 20 one more time, brother. Verse 20. Now the God of peace. The God of what, brother? The God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, Make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Look at that closely, brothers and sisters, because according to the, the text, the progression towards completion works from within you. Can you read 21 one more time, brother? Verse 21. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Working in you. You see that, brothers and sisters? So the appeal is to make you complete in every good work. That's what the, the text is saying. Could you read 21 one more time, brother? Verse 21. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. See that? So you're seeing the appeal, which is to what? Make you complete in every good work. So what is that referring to? It's referring to a full state or a state of full functionality. See, the text teaches us that the Most High will work through those who are willing to be worked through. 
So he's not going to force you. You must be willing to be used. Submission. Not to neglect, not to reject. It's not about rejection. It's really about neglecting. There is a process that many people neglect. And the Bible is going to reveal it today. We're going to 2 Corinthians 7. Remember, the first scripture told us what? Many people will neglect salvation. Paul said, listen, salvation is wide, it's, it's tall, it's, it's weighty, it's heavy. It's all of those things. So we're going we're gonna to reveal it. We're going to use the Bible to reveal it today, brothers and sisters. 2 Corinthians 7 and 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting or completing holiness in the fear of God, right? I need you to examine the chronological structure of the text. Could you read that one more time, brother? Verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved. Do what? Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. <clears throat> According to the author, you must cleanse yourself of all filthiness prior to your progression into perfection. You see, brothers and sisters, can you read that one more time, brother? Verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved. Do what, brother? Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Doing what, brother? Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. See? So according to the author, the first step of bringing holiness into completion is cleansing and purification. That word holiness is sanctification, to make holy. That's what sanctification means, brothers and sisters. Let us cleanse ourselves from what, brother? From, the, from filthiness, all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Now, take a look at that. There's filthiness of the flesh and spirit. <laughs> you see? So that has to be cleansed, brothers and sisters. That has to be cleansed. Holiness is another word for sanctified. Sanctified or holy means set apart. Remember that? Exodus 20. Sanctify the seventh day, right? Set, set apart, separate. That's what sanctification is. He said you must cleanse yourself of all filthiness of your flesh and your spirit. That's how you work towards perfection. So we'll learn how to do that today, according to the Bible, brothers and sisters. We're going to go to Acts 22 and 16, because in order to get on this path of salvation, you must first start in the beginning to cleanse you, cleanse yourself, right? To be justified. How does this cleansing take place, according to the Bible? Acts 22 and 16 is the answer, brothers and sisters. Acts 22 and 16. And now why tarriest thou? Arise, and be baptized, 
and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And it, and it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I, while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance. Look at this closely, brothers and sisters, because here we read Luke's condemnation of any negligence concerning cleansing. What's the first part say in 16, brother? Verse 16. And now why tarriest thou? What are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. And do what? Wash away thy sins. According to the text, the act of baptism represents the washing away of past sin and guilt. So that's where you first have to start, brothers and sisters. The effect of baptism is to take away not future, but present and past sins. And I want to be clear on that because some people believe, well, I'm baptized and I can, you know, all my sins are just washed away even in the future. It doesn't work that way, brothers and sisters. There's something within man, male and female, that always tries to get over that always looks for the easy route. But the Most High is not going to allow it. You're going to have to do this process. I'm going to have to do this process. Brother Corey is going to have to fulfill this process. So you have, we have work to do, brothers and sisters. It's not like, okay, I'm, I'm there because I know about pork. I know about crab, shrimp, and lobster. I know about the Sabbath. I know who the Jews are. Okay, and... That's not salvation. It begins with what? Let's read 16 one more time, brother. Acts 22 and 16. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. That's the key. Wash away your sins. It tells you. How do you do that? Baptism. I want to make it clear. Baptism deals with your past, but it doesn't help your future. Okay? So we have to deal with that. The first thing that must be done working unto perfection is being cleansed. That's the first thing that must happen. If I'm going to, you know, walk in the way of righteousness, walk in the way of salvation, I must be cleansed from what I've already done. Let's go to Romans. Because we, we found out how to be cleansed. Baptism. I can't work unto perfection if I'm dirty. Romans 6 and 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Brothers and sisters, baptism imitates us what our savior did for us and what by our participation in it we show our desire to be united with it brothers and sisters see by baptism a man is incorporated into the death of the messiah being freed from the death of the punishment due to him for his past sins see that's justification <laughs> okay being justified we said is what being free from the penalty of the sin. Let's read those two scriptures one more time, brother, please. Romans 6 and 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. 
We're buried with him by what, brother? By baptism into death. According to the text, baptism is the step taken in which we are united with Christ in death and life. Verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Look at that, brothers and sisters. Here we see why a life of persistent sin is incompatible with the profession of faith during baptism. It says, listen, you died. <laughs> you died in baptism. Now you have to walk in newness of life. Now that's the key. Because remember, we said that baptism doesn't help you in the future. <laughs> that, takes, that takes care of the past. Okay, I'm cleansed. God won't bring that up. But that doesn't help me walk for the next five years. That doesn't help me walk for the next 10 years, 20 years. So we're taking care of the past problem. But we need help going forward. According to the Bible. So we needed to point that out. Okay. You become justified. Or free from the penalty of sin. Through baptism. But then you have a step going forward. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 brother. I hope you're following us brothers and sisters. Second Corinthians 5 and 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The Apostle Paul informs the, the reading audience that the Most High, through his Son, gave us a way to escape the penalty of sin. What was that again, brother? Verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Look at that. The text highlights the great exchange that transpired at the cross. Brothers and sisters. Christ got all of our sin and guilt. And we got his perfect righteousness standing before God. You see? Declared righteous. Justified. You see that, brothers and sisters? We can only be justified or declared righteous or separated from the penalty of sin through Christ's blood. How do I apply Christ's blood? Baptism. It's the only way to apply the blood to your doorpost. You can say whatever you want, okay? But if you don't find water, you're not applying his blood. Okay? Okay? Because all the disciples, all the churches, and all the, you know, in the Corinth, the church of Corinth, the church of Ephesus, the church of Rome, these were baptized. That's how they got in the church. <laughs> there was no members of Christ's church that weren't baptized. Let's read that one more time, brother, please. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. See, so his righteousness was exchanged for our sin, brothers and sisters. So justification devoid of this exchange, there without this, brothers and sisters, there could be no reconciliation. It says that, you know, our reconciliation came through an exchange. 
That's being declared justified. Look up what justified means. Look up what justification means in the dictionary, brothers and sisters. This was it right here. This was it. I had to be cleansed from my past sins, right? So I could put on his righteousness. So that's the first step. Justification. That's the very first step on the path to salvation is to be justified. That means freed from the penalty of my past sins with a clean slate. That's the first step, brothers and sisters. Now, as we progress through this lesson, some of us will be in different stages. But you ought to know exactly where you are. You ought to know what the future holds for you. You ought to know the plan that the Most High have laid out for you and I. And it first starts with justification, being justified. Let's go to Titus, brother. Titus. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're going to Titus, the third chapter in the eighth verse. Titus 3, verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that, affirm, that you affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Now that's key, because the author here reminds of, of what we were redeemed for. See, that's the key. People are saying they're saved. We say we know what you're saved from, but what are you saved for? See, that's the part that's missing here, okay? Christ didn't come <laughs> to just, you know, keep you from hell. That's not it. There's something going forward that he's saving, saving us for. The same thing when we're talking about salvaging something or recycling something. I'm not recycling because I don't want it to go to the rubbish dump. <laughs> I'm recycling it for the, for a reason, so it can become something useful again. And that's a long process. It's a very long process. Let's read that one more time, brother, please. Titus 3 and 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things will... I will that thou affirm constantly. How You said constantly, right? I will that thou affirm constantly mm -hmm. that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. That they which believed in God, what, brother? May be careful to maintain good works. That's key. See, we must not only remove sin, but we must also replace sin, filling ourselves with good works. See? So the, we understand <laughs> the baptism removes the sin, but it doesn't help going forward. Why? Because you cannot sustain the deprivation of sin without good works. The text is teaching us this. Let's read that one more time, brother. Verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. Maintain good works, right? These things are good and profitable unto men. See? So the principle taught in this text is that we must maintain good works in order to avoid sin. See? 
In this text, Paul desired to stress to believers the requirement of maintaining good works. Saying, listen, you've been justified, okay? You've been cleansed. Okay, what, how do you walk in newness of life, though? Do you go back and do the same things you've been cleansed from? See? Now you're going into another process, brothers and sisters. You're stepping onto another land now. Justification, yes. See, that's where Christians stop. They stop right there, justified. Christ died for my sins. I'm saved. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Not that easy, according to the Bible. He's saying, once I've cleansed you, be careful to maintain good works. Why? Because these things are profitable for men. That's male and female there. So let's talk about that, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, please follow us to 1 Thessalonians, the 5th chapter, the 21st through the 23rd verses. <clears> 1 <throat> Thessalonians 5 and 21. Prove all things and hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Do what? Abstain from all appearance of evil. Here we see that it's counterproductive even give the appearance of evil. Now remember what the scripture previous said, maintain good works. Why? Because that's profitable. You've been justified. You've been cleansed. Okay? Christ died for your sins. He shed his blood. You applied the blood to the doorpost of your heart through what? Baptism. Right? So you can't claim, you can't even be covered under his blood. If you're not baptized, cannot do it. And now he's saying, this is how you walk going forward. Once I cleanse you, you have to walk in newness of life. Let's read that one more time, brother, please. First Thessalonians 5 and 21. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Christ. According to the text, there are three elements that, com uh, that comprise man. And each one of them must be sanctified and made holy. Do you see that, brothers and sisters? Let's read, let's read 22 and 23 one more time. Verse 22. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. That word holy means completely. Sanctify you completely. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Christ. Now look at that. Because as we see, the implication of the text is that sanctification should be a progressive should be of a progressive nature. You see that, brothers and sisters? It said your your what? Your spirit, your soul, and your body. And then on top of that, it said, sanctify you wholly. So that means you must have all three, brothers and sisters, okay? You must have all three. Follow us closely. Let's go to Leviticus 20 and 7. Leviticus 20 verse 7. Sanctify yourselves therefore, and be ye holy. For I am the Lord your God. Now that's key there. 
Because sanctification means both what? Being set apart and being made holy. You see that, brothers and sisters? Do you see that? Can you read that one more time, brother? Verse 7. Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God. See? So justification is just the first step. Okay? Sanctification is the next step. That's being separated from sin. This is the key because this is where you're going to spend most of your life is in this, sanctifi this sanctifying stage of your life, which is being cleansed, being purified. Okay. Let's go to Ecclesiasticus, brother. Six and four, because remember. First Thessalonians said what? What did first Thessalonians say? That you be sanctified, holy spirit, soul and body. See, so it's a process here. That doesn't happen at one time. Let's go to Ecclesiasticus 6 and 4, brothers and sisters. Ecclesiasticus 6, verse 4. A wicked soul shall destroy him that has it, and shall make him to be laughed to scorn of his enemies. Mm. Brothers and sisters, here we read the importance of the sanctification of the soul. You see that? The cleansing, the purification, being set apart and made holy. Can you read that again, brother? Verse 4. A wicked soul shall destroy him that has it. It shall what, brother? Shall destroy him that has it. The text highlights the destructive nature of a soul not governed by the spirit. You see this, brothers and sisters? And what, brother? And shall make him to be laughed to scorn of his enemies. See? So the author implies what? A heavy, uh, a high level of attentiveness that must be directed towards the soul. Why? Because it will destroy you. So that's what the author of Thessalonians was saying when it said, you know, I need you to be sanctified holy. Not just your spirit. But what? Your soul and your body. Because the spirit comes when? The, the spirit is sanctified upon receiving the Holy Spirit. See, that's the inside. But then you have to get to the soul. Then you have to get to the body. Because that's salvation. Being sanctified holy. Being declared holy. Not only in your spirit, but in your soul and your body. This is a lifelong process. This is a lifelong process. Let us show you. Let's go to Proverbs, brother. Proverbs, the 19th chapter, the second verse, and then we'll jump to the 8th verse. <clears throat> Proverbs 19, verse 2. Also, that the soul be without knowledge, it is not good. And he that ha hasteth with his feet sinneth. Can you read that one more time, brother? Verse 2. Also, that the soul be without knowledge, it is not good. And he that hasteth with his feet sinneth. Now this is clear. A soul without knowledge. It's not a good thing. So the possession and pursuit of wisdom according to the text is highly beneficial to the soul. We know how to, okay, we know how to deal with the spirit. Baptism, receiving the Holy Spirit, right? But now you have to move on to the soul. Because that is the place. That's the place where you're going to find the trouble at, brothers and sisters. 
Let us show you. Let's go to Psalms 19 and 7. We're going to show where you're going to have the trouble. Psalms 19 and 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Doing what? Converting the soul. The soul of man in its natural state requires to be converted or restored according to the psalmist. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Look at that, brothers and sisters. Examine what the psalmist is saying closely because your soul and its desires must be converted to the way of Christ. It's the soul, brothers and sisters. You have what? You have your spirit, which is the innermost part of man. And what? Then you have the soul, which contains the spirit. And then you have the body, which contains the soul and then the spirit. So there's a, there's a connector. There's a medium between your spirit and your flesh. And it's the soul. So if the spirit wants, if the spirit is receiving some information from the most high, it has to communicate that to the soul and the soul must communicate that to the body. So the most high will be speaking to your spirit and you try to, you know, your spirit is saying, listen, do this. And your soul is like, nah. This feels too good. It's your soul that deals with your desires, your emotions. Let us show you. Let's go to Ecclesiasticus 37 and 27. Examine this, please, brothers and sisters. This information is going to help you greatly. Ecclesiasticus 37 and 27. Ecclesiasticus. 37 and 27. My son, prove thy soul in thy life, and see what is evil for it, and give not that unto it. For all things are not profitable for all men, neither hath every soul pleasure in everything. According to the author, life is a journey in which is to be used to discover yourself. See? And especially for men. Especially for men. Let's read 27 one more time. Verse 27. My son. Who? My son. Who? My son. Prove thy soul in thy life, and see what is evil for it, and give not that unto it. For all things are not profitable for all men, neither hath every soul pleasure in everything. Mm. So in this particular text, we learn that the soul is the seat from which pleasure derives. Read 28 one more time, brother, please. Verse 28. For all things are not profitable for all men. Neither hath every soul pleasure in everything. So it's telling you that what? The soul deals with the pleasure. See? So here we, we learn the motive behind the mandated conversion of the soul in Psalms. Remember, <laughs> it said that the soul needed to be converted. The law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. Now we see why. The soul of man must be made to yield. The Bible's telling you this. It's the soul that you're going to have the, the trouble with. Because the soul has to communicate to the body. At one time, brothers and sisters, 
the spirit will communicate directly to the body without having to go into without having to go through the soul as it you know as it should have been without sin but now the spirit you can have even the holy spirit is communicating something it still has to go through what the soul in order to get your body to actually do it this is a lifelong process. First Thessalonians said what? That you be sanctified wholly, your spirit, your soul, and your body. Completely sanctified. You're in the sanctification stage, most of us. I'm already justified. I've been baptized. I've been cleansed. But now I'm trying to, to you know, to separate myself from sin completely. To be declared holy. Let's go to Hebrews 4 and 12. Brothers and sisters. I need you to take a look at this. Hebrews the 4th chapter. The 12th verse. Hebrews 4 and 12. For the word of God is quick. And powerful. And sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Look at that, brothers and sisters. This manuscript is to be used as an instruction manual. Look at look at what the text is saying. Can you read that one more time, brother? Hebrews four and twelve. For the word of God is quick and powerful. And sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Dividing the soul from the spirit. And of the joints and marrow. And the soul, the spirit, and the body are, di are divided according to the Bible. So he's saying, I can teach you about the spirit. I can teach you about the soul. I can teach you about your, about your flesh. Utilizing this book, brothers and sisters. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So look at that. This is a graphic explanation of how God's word can distinguish between who? The godly and the ungodly. You see this, brothers and sisters? This incredible cutting power of the scriptures, therefore, a tool to separate good and evil. It said it's a what, brother? For the word of God is quick and powerful. And sharper than any two-edged sword. Sharper than two, uh, any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And of the joints and marrow. Mm -hmm. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's a discerner of what, brother? The thoughts and intents of the heart. So even on a thought level, the word of God cuts with precision as it reaches our innermost being, brothers and sisters. This is where we are. This is salvation here. There's a division. There's a threefold division according to Hebrews. The soul, the spirit, and the body. All three of these must be made holy. All three of these must be sanctified. All three of these must be must be complete. That's what the that's what this journey is. This journey isn't about memorizing scripture or not celebrating the holy days. We know what you're saved from, but what were you saved for? That's the part that we're missing. 
Okay, you're salvaged for something. Because why? Hell, according to the Bible, is a garbage can. It's God's garbage can. When you look at a person being cast into hell, that's what you find, cast into hell. You never find placed in hell or sent to hell. No, you're garbage. You get thrown in the garbage. Hell, in the Greek, was the garbage, brothers and sisters. It was the area of Israel where everyone put their sewage, their trash, anything that they didn't want and lit it on fire. So we're trying to be salvaged from that. Because once the Most High make that call and say, son, I got I to gotta throw you away. You're not, I can no longer use you. And that's the worst that's the worst for God's greatest creation. For him to say, I, I have no use for you. I no longer can have, I no longer can utilize you in the way in which I created you to be used. Guess what? Being salvaged is a long process. It first starts with being cleansed. Justification. And then what? Separating yourself further and further and further from sin by doing what? Sanctifying your spirit, right? Sanctifying your soul and sanctifying your body. That's the steps, brothers and sisters. Let's go to Matthew, brother, 23 and 19. How do we how do we do this? How do we sanctify these three parts of our, ourselves? Matthew 23 and 19. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Let's read that one more time because there was there was some key information there, brothers and sisters. Verse 19. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. The gift or the altar that does what, brother? That sanctifieth the gift. It is the altar that sanctifies the gift. Brothers and sisters. So when does your body become sanctified? <laughs> when it's placed on the altar. So anytime you take your body off the altar. Your sanctification is broken. See the only way to, to sanctify these three parts of yourself. Is to sacrifice it. Unto the most high. According to the Bible. This is not Brother Corey and Brother Sid saying this. Let's read it one more time, brother. Verse 19. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. See? It's the altar that sanctifies the gift, brothers and sisters. So anytime you take your body off that altar, your sanctification is broken. We dealt with the soul. <laughs> We're working our way down. We started with the Holy Spirit. How did you receive the Holy Spirit? According to the Bible. Be baptized for the remission of your sins, right? And then what? <laughs> now, okay, we got the Spirit now. The Holy Spirit is there. I have to move on to the soul. We went into the scriptures about the Bible telling you to educate your soul. Don't allow your soul to lead you because it will lead you into destruction. And now what? We have to deal with the body. Why? Because 1 Thessalonians said that you be sanctified completely. Spirit, soul, and body. 
Let's deal with the body. Let's deal with the body. Let's go to Romans, brother. 12 and 1. Because Matthew said what? The altar is what does the sanctifying. So the if you want to sanctify some part of you, it must be laid on the altar. Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Christ went on the Sabbath day through the corn. Excuse me, brother. Let's go to Romans 12 and 1. Lock it. Romans 12 chapter, the first verse. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Which is your what, brother? Your reasonable service. It's clear that Paul understood the obligatory nature of submission and sacrifice when it's regarding sanctification and salvation. He understood this. How do we know? Look at how he constructs this verse. Could you read that again, brother? Romans 12 and 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Present your body what, brother? A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Which is your what, brother? Your reasonable service. Paul reminds us that we do this because of the mercy shown to us by the Most High. It's key, though, because he said instead of giving a sacrifice, he says, be one. You see? So he understood, brothers and sisters, it must be laid on the altar in order to be declared holy. Let's read that one more time. Romans 12 and 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Lay it on the altar. Holy. Look at that. Right after you lay it on the, the altar, now he said holy and acceptable. <laughs> you see, the only way to sanctify which is another word for declared holy, right? Is to lay it on the altar. That's the only way. So let the bodies which once served sin now submissively serve him. Paul understood this, this concept. You have to lay yourself down on that altar. Lay your spirit down on that altar. Lay your soul down on that altar. Lay your body down on that altar. Submit. It's the only way to be fully or completely sanctified. It's the only way. And this is a lifelong process, brothers and sisters. You don't do this in one year. It's not possible. Okay? It's not possible. You're lying to yourself if you think you're, you're completely you know, sanctified. Because guess what? The body, okay, we understand that. You know, don't eat pork, don't fornicate. But what about your soul? See, that's dealing with your desires. That's, th that's dealing with your thoughts. See? That's another thing entirely. Your thoughts, your soul, your desires. He said that must be cleansed. That must be sanctified completely. In order for you to obtain salvation. Let us show. We're going to 2 Corinthians 5 and 14. Brothers and sisters. 
2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, the 14th verse. 2 Corinthians 5 and 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we, ju we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they, they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them. And rose again. Now look at this. Because according to the author. Christ's sacrifice puts us under the obligation. To live our lives in submission to God's will. You see this brothers and sisters. That's called sanctification. Let's read that one more time. From the top. Verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus judge. That if one died for all. Then we're all dead. Mm. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them, and rose again. Wherefore, hence, wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yeah, though we, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Now look at that. Because here Paul is placing the emphasis on the laws of reciprocation. He's admonishing us, he's admonishing us what, brothers and sisters, to not be better takers than we are givers. He said, listen, you took the sacrifice, you took the blood, now give up your life. <laughs> See, many of us are better takers than we are givers. He said, there, this is an exchange, okay? You don't run off on the with the blood and live your life how you want to live your life. No, that, that's not going to happen. Okay, you're going to hell. Brothers and sisters, follow us to Zechariah 3. Um, we're going to start at verse 3 and verse 4. It's, it's clear here, brothers and sisters. There has to be an exchange according to 2 Corinthians. That listen, he laid down his life. And since he laid down his life, you ought to live for him. So there's an exchange that has to go on here, okay? Let's talk about that exchange. Zechariah 3, verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. Mm, brothers and sisters, the prophet Zechariah gives us a picture of how the Most High views sin as stains on our spiritual garments. This was Joshua here. This was the high priest. Joshua was a high priest, brothers and sisters. Okay, he's talking to the high priest. And look at what he's saying to Joshua. Could you read that from the top, brother? Zechariah 3 and 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. Brothers and sisters, according to the text, there's a chronological order in which this exchange must be restricted to. Can you read that one more time, brother? Verse 4. Verse 4, and he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. Step 1. 
And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with the change of raiment. See, so step one is you must be derobed. You must be unclothed. And then step two is what? We see it. The clean apparel is only provided subsequent to your undressing. It's key. You need to look at this again, brothers and sisters. Can you read that from the top, please? Verse three. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. You must be derobed first. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. Then I'll change your clothes. <laughs> He's saying, first thing you have to do is get undressed, okay? I can't give you a change of raiment until you take the filthiness off. <laughs> now this, this, brothers and sisters, the Bible is so flawless. So flawless. Because the first thing that has to happen is you have to be baptized, right? And then what has to happen? You have to sanctify yourself completely before he can give you a change of raiment. <laughs> Let the scriptures break it down. Let us show you. There's a principle here. That, or, or, there's a principle that the Bible follows. There's a narrative about being derobed and then reclothed. Let's go to Mark 10. Mark 10 and 46. Please examine this closely. Brothers and sisters, because this is applicable to you and I, all of us, Jews and Gentiles. We're at Mark 10 and 46. We're going to read through 52. Mark 10 and 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, Sat by the highway side begging. This is this is blind Bartimaeus. We know about this story, right? Verse 47. And when he heard that it was Christ of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Christ, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should hold his peace. But he cried the more a great deal. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Christ stood still. And commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man saying unto him. Be of good comfort. Rise. He calleth thee. And he, and he casting away his garment. Rose and came to Christ. Can you read that again brother? Verse 50. And he casting away his garment. Rose and came to Christ. And Christ answered and said unto him. What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Christ said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath, has made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Christ in the way. Brothers and sisters, it was not by chance that St. Mark mentioned that Bartimaeus threw his garment aside. Let us examine this again, brothers and sisters. Look at verse... Look at verse 49. Mark 10 and 49. And Christ stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. What does he do? And he, casting away his garment. The first thing he did was what, brother? 
casting away his garment, rose and came to Christ. This was not coincidence that Mark put this here, okay? Because he meant to record it. Why? Because this movement carried a lot of deep spiritual meaning. Before he was healed, he had to be undressed. He had to be derobed, okay? This demonstrated his desire to leave the past behind him. You see this, brothers and sisters? The first thing that happened before he was healed was he needed to be derobed. He needed to be unclothed. That was the first step. See? You can't have a change in apparel until you take that off first. Let us show you. Let's go to Mark 14 and 46. Let's go to Mark 14 and 46, brothers and sisters. Please follow us there. We're going to read 46 through 52. Mark 14 and 46. Now, this was during the time of when Christ was getting ready to be apprehended, brothers and sisters. Look at this closely, okay? Verse 46. And they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Christ answered and said unto him, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and ye took me not, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Now this is when Christ is being accosted, brothers and sisters, and we know Peter cut a brother's ear off, right? We know the story, but look at this closely, because there's some, there's some details that a lot of times we overlook. That have spiritual meaning. Okay brothers and sisters. Uh, let's start back up and say. The 48th verse. Mark 14 and 48. And Christ answered and said unto them. Are ye come out as against the thief. With swords and with staves to take me. I was daily with you in the temple teaching. And ye took me not. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And they also forsook him and fled. And there and there followed him a certain young man, having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young man laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Look at this, brothers and sisters. It's telling you that the disciples took off running, but there was one brother who got snatched out of his clothes, okay? He took off running. They tried to accost the brother. They tried to apprehend the brother. And they grabbed his garment and the brother ran off. Okay. Now, those who follow our church know that this type of information is not coincidence in the Bible. Never. It, it's never coincidence because he didn't even have to, Mark didn't even have to put this in the Bible. Okay. You would think that it really has nothing to do with the story, but does it? It's telling you that, listen, when they came to apprehend Christ, there was a disciple. There was a brother following him who they were going to take him also. He came out of his garment and took off running. He fled. Let us read that one more time because I want you to actually picture this in your mind. Let's read it from verse 48. Verse 48. And Christ answered and said unto them. Are you come out as against a thief 
with swords and with staves to take me. He's like, y'all, you coming after me like I committed a crime or something, like I murdered somebody. How y'all coming to get me? Verse 49. I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. He said, listen, you're trying to come to me privately, but I was there publicly. While in your, you were there, and you did nothing. So now you're here at night, you know, now you're here at nighttime. That's okay, because the scriptures must be fulfilled. This is what Christ said. Verse 50. And they all forsook him and fled. The disciples took off. And there followed him a certain young man, having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young man laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. He fled from them what, brother? And he fled from them naked. Now, this is critical, brothers and sisters, because there was a young man with Christ that was derobed and took off running, right? Let's go to John 19 and 23. It said there was a young man with a linen cloth on his naked body. Once they tried to apprehend him, he took off. He took off so fast that his garments, they only had their garments in their hand. They had his garment in his hand. He had got away. Now take a look at after Christ's resurrection, brothers and sisters. John 19 and, 20, <clears throat> and 23. Well, actually, let's go, to his, let's go to his crucifixion first. Verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Christ, took his garments. What did they do? Took his garments and made four parts. To every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they, they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. So it's telling you that the Roman soldiers... They derobed Christ, right? And then they cast lots for his garments. So here we see a lot of unclothing, right? We see a lot of unclothing, brothers and sisters. There was a young man in Mark, the 14th chapter, in the 51st verse, that said what? That he was derobed as they tried to accost him, as they tried to apprehend him, right? Now, in John the 19th chapter, it's showing you that they took Christ's garments. And then it tells you it was without seam. That's key there. Because it's telling you that this was high quality, this was high quality garments. This was high quality apparel. This was one piece without seams. That's why they said, listen, we're not going to rip it, okay? <laughs> we're not going to tear it. This was high quality. But the point is, they took Christ's clothes. Now, what is all of this? What's so important about clothes in the Bible? Let's go to Galatians 3 and 27. Because here it is, Christ has now been derobed, right? Let's go to Galatians 3 and 27. Look at this closely, please, brothers and sisters. Look at the verbiage here. Galatians 3 and 27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Have done what? Have put on Christ. Look at the verbiage there. 
have put on Christ. That verbiage of being clothed, you see? So Christ was declothed, and you have been clothed in his garments through what? Can you read that again, brother? Verse 27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ. Now look at that. When it comes to that, when it comes to baptism, listen. <laughs> if, you, if you pursue that, it doesn't matter who you are. Uh, ethnically, okay, doesn't understand. It doesn't matter if you're male, female. It doesn't matter, okay. When it comes to this, you're putting on Christ as a garment. So Christ's garments removed. Once you are identified with Him through baptism, you're putting on His righteousness. You're putting on His garments. Let us prove that. Let's go to Mark sixteen. Follow us, brothers and sisters, because where did this start? This started with Joshua, the high priest, being derobed from his filthy garments and put on a robe of righteousness. Right. And remember, blind Bartimaeus, we were showing that the principle, biblically speaking, is you had to be derobed before you could be reclothed. That's how it is. We're at Mark, the 16th chapter in the fifth and sixth verse. Follow us there, please, brothers and sisters. Mark 16 and 5. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. This is after Christ has been, you know, after Christ's crucifixion, right? And his resurrection. Verse 6. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted. Ye seek Christ of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. Now, brothers and sisters, remember, remember, we we read of a young man in Mark a few chapters prior who ran out of his garments. Right. He was with Christ, you know, learning from Christ, just, you know, following Christ. And when they came to apprehend Christ, the young man took off running. Naked, right? His garments, they pulled his garments right off of his back, right? And it clearly said it was a young man also, right? Now here it is, after Christ's death, right, and resurrection, what are we seeing here? Let's read verse 5 one more time. Mark 16 and 5. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment. And they were affrighted. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted. Ye seek Christ of Nazareth, which was crucified. He a, is risen. A long white garment. There looks like there was an exchange here. There was an exchange here because there was a young brother, right? There was a young brother who was declothed, trying to follow Christ. And now we're seeing a young man, what? Now clothed in a long white garment. Now this is key. Because remember, the Bible said that Christ's piece of, his garment, his apparel was one piece. So this is clearly symbolic here, brothers and sisters. That one young man gets declothed, he gets unrobed. 
And now after or subsequent to Christ's death and resurrection, there's a young man here clothed with a white garment to the floor. There was an exchange here. Remember what happened in between that? Christ's garments were taken. <laughs> See? So in between those two, Christ's garments were removed. And now we're finding a young man clothed in all white. Remember what happened at what happened at the uh, transfiguration, brothers and sisters. What happened there? Christ's garments were made white, you know, whiter than fuller soap. His raiment was so bright <laughs> you couldn't even look at it. So it's giving you hints here, brothers and sisters, on what is transpiring. There is a change of clothing. There's an exchange of garments here. Remember, he said, Joshua, take that off. Okay, take that off and I'll give you some new apparel. Blind Bartimaeus, he, before he's healed, before he comes to Christ, he throws off his garment. Right? And he's healed. And then we find the young man following Christ had his garments removed from him as Christ is going to be crucified. See? And then what happens? Christ's garments. They're cast in lots for Christ's garments. And now we find this brother here hanging out at, at Christ's tomb, fully clothed, white garments, right after the resurrection. It's key, brothers and sisters. It's key. What we're learning is before you can be reclothed, brothers and sisters, you must first be derobed. Why? Let's go to Genesis 3 and 7. Let's go to Genesis 3 and 7. We're going to read 7 through 11. It's key here. Look at this, brothers and sisters. Genesis 3 verse 7. And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid. Why? Because I was naked. Why? Because I was naked, and I hid myself. So... Brothers and sisters, if we contextualize these verses, we see that hiding and covering are primary indicators of shame. Okay? That was shame. He, he was ashamed. That's why I tried to clothe myself. Can you read 10 one more time, brother? Verse 10. And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said... Who told thee that thou was naked? Who told you you're naked, Adam? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee that thou should not eat? So it's clear, brothers and sisters. The garments, the apparel, represented shame. Right? He was ashamed. They were ashamed. So they tried to sew together fig leaves. So what do we learn from that? The Bible is saying you must reveal your shame before I can reclothe. You must reveal your shame before I can clothe you. What is revealing your shame? Remember, the scripture said what? <laughs> what 
What did the scripture say? Those of you who are baptized in Christ's death have put Christ on. Your shame is baptism. You being baptized, publicly showing that I'm a sinner. I need better. I can't do it alone. I need forgiveness. I need mercy. See, that's the revelation of your shame. And that's why most people, a lot of Israelites won't even do it. Because they will not humble themselves. They don't want anyone to know that they sin. Or that they're still learning. Or, you know, that they're still, you know, trying to grow. The Pharisees were dealing with this. They refused to be baptized. Remember, John said, who have warned you for the wrath to come, you vipers? They would not be baptized. Why? Because these were the high priests. Okay? So they didn't want other people looking at them and saying, well, listen, if you got sin too, then, I mean, maybe we should follow this guy. <laughs> maybe we should follow John. Maybe we should follow Christ instead of coming to you. So it's clear, brothers and sisters, you must be declothed or derobed, unclothed before the Most High can put on a new apparel for you or give you new apparel, new raiment. That's the principle that we're seeing here. And when do you do that? When do you derobe yourself? When do you become unclothed? When you find that water and you're fully submerged in living water for your sins, a public declaration that I'm a sinner. See, that's the revelation of your shame. After that, according to the text, you can put Christ on or you can put on Christ. Let us show you something. Let's go to Isaiah 61 and then we're going to end it at 1 Corinthians 15 and 51. Isaiah 61 and 10. Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. With what brother? The garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments. And as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Look at that. It's clear. It's clear brothers and sisters. It's clear. Look at this. He have clothed me with garments of salvation. He have covered me with a robe of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, in the Bible, in Hebrew hermeneutics, your apparel represented your character. Okay? You can find that type of, that theme all throughout the manuscript. The apparel was linked to the character and behaviors. Let's read that one more time, brethren, please. Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments. And as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. <laughs> you see that correlation? You know who, who the bridegroom is. Based on his apparel. You know who the bride is based on her apparel. It's telling you that what? The apparel tells you who it is and what they do. So symbolically or spiritually, that's what he's saying here. I can look at your garments, brother. I can look at your garments, sister. Your spiritual garments. And know 
who you are and what you're about. So your dress, your apparel, it's spiritual. It always has been according to the Bible. That's why he pointed to a bridegroom and how he decked himself. Right? That's why I pointed to a bride and how she adorns herself. It's clear. <laughs> you see that? You know exactly who that is and where they're going. So it's key. He said, you have to be derobed. You have to be unclothed. That's the only way I'll be able to get you new apparel, son. That's the only way I'll be able to get you apparel, daughter. It's the only way. You're not going to... You, I'm not going to give you clothes while you're still wearing clothes. You have to first reveal your shame and then I'll clothe you. Because if you're unwilling to reveal your shame, then just wear those filthy garments. And we're going to end it here, brothers and sisters. Because this is the glorification. Now we go to the glorification. Remember, it started with justification. And then it went to sanctification. And now we're at glorification, which is the final step. Look at how the words are, are constructed, brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians 15 and 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. <laughs> Read 53 one more time, brother. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. There goes that apparel again. You see how it's talking about corruptibility and incorruption as a garment? <laughs> you have to put this on. Corruptible must put on incorruption. Mortal must put on immortality. Continue, brother. Verse 54. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality... Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You see? You see that, brothers and sisters? Once you're sanctified, once you take off those garments, I can reclothe you now with immorality. I mean, excuse me, uh, with immortality. First, you have to put off the immorality. You have to take your garment of immorality off. Then I will give you the garments of immortality. This is how it works. You see this, brothers and sisters? This is, how, this is how it works. So you start with what? Justification. You start there. Just, I need to be declared righteous. I need to be cleansed. I need, the mo I need to be able to walk in the room and not get shot by the Most High. So the first thing I have to do is get cleansed so I can get in His presence, right? Now, I'm in His presence. I, I'm, I'm cleansed, but I have to stay clean. It's the only way. I have to stay clean. How do I do this? Sanctification. Separating yourself from sin. Right? Not only your, your flesh, but your soul and your spirit. All of that. Being separated. And once that's complete, once you put off immortality, once you put off the garments 
of spiritual fornication. Now we give you the robes of righteousness. Now we give you the garments of salvation. This is how it works, brothers and sisters, according to the, the Bible, not according to Brother Sid and Brother Corey, okay? We're just pulling out the scriptures that are there. So these are the steps to salvation, brothers and sisters. These are the steps, and I encourage you to, to pray on this information, you know, to go back on this information, look into it for yourself, look, in, look, for, uh, look into some of the other scriptures that talk about salvation, brothers and sisters. Because don't neglect this. Hebrews told us what? Hebrews 2 and 3 said it's, it's impossible to escape condemnation if you neglect so great a salvation. What we learned today was a lot of information, more than most of us knew. Because why? The Christians taught us about salvation. And they didn't teach us all that. They told us, confess Christ with your mouth and you'll be saved. No, that's a, that's a corruption. <laughs> that's a corruption of the narrative, okay? Here we learned about what? You begin with justification, being justified through baptism, taking on his blood. Now I have to live in the newness of life, which is called sanctification. Not only just my flesh, but my soul and my spirit. And once that is complete, I can be glorified. The glorification is what we just read. When the corruptible, excuse me, when the corruptible shall put on incorruption. When the mortal shall put on immortality. That is glorification. Today's lesson. This thing you call salvation. We want to say. Kwam Yasharala. Kwam Yasharala. Sin no more. Sin no more.